Hello, I'm Jason Barnwell. I work on legal business operations and strategy for Microsoft. Today, I am chatting with Jayom, founder and executive director of Six Parsecs, an insights company for the legal market. I read pretty much everything that Jay writes. Uh, she has been unbelievably helpful in helping me understand how to actually do my job. And I am amazed at the depth of the content that she puts out. She happened to be in town for something that I hope we'll talk about uh, as we get into the podcast a little bit later on. But I am delighted that you are here, and I am really excited to talk to you today. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So tell me about your business. What is Six Parsecs, and what do you do? So Six Parsecs is a research and insights company. Uh, currently, we offer no services. Um, currently, we actually offer nothing uh, for fees. Every Everything we've done is free, available online. Um, it's all content. So it is a content model, and uh, very soon we will have a product for sale. It will be a... Uh, insights report on the current state of play for legal innovation mm. and I hope that a lot of people will take an interest um, but yeah I think that one of the things that I really want to do in the marketplace is to get people on the same page get people using the same vernacular mm. um, get people to have real conversations that are meaningful because I think there's a lot of uh, effort being expended right now. It's not that people are not trying. There are amazing conversations happening. It's just that it's not scaling. It feels really slow because it is. People are having the same conversations inefficiently and then they're having the same conversations over and over and over again with all of their stakeholders. And then so my hope is that with a content-based mo model rather than a services-based model that I will be able to cover more ground. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things I've been writing about is the fragmentation and opacity in the marketplace. I think these are two structural factors that you know really slow us down when we're trying to get better, right? Um, the opacity, some of it is necessary because obviously legal services, confidential, sensitive, sometimes adversarial, but I think that seeps into our culture. It's built into how the industry is structured and not all of those things are, you know, um, I, some of those things are conducive to change. Mm -hmm. I, I believe they are. Uh, I think uh, the language issue can certainly be fixed. <laughs> Um, but in terms of the fragmentation, I think some of the fragmentation is also organic, um, but also conducive to change. And I think people just need to maybe all look at the same picture together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that will uh, help with the pace of change, which I know is a big source of frustration. So uh, as a purchaser of legal services at pretty decent scale, I absolutely will reinforce what you're saying that having to buy the same thing in so many different ways and having the, the outputs come back in so many different ways is, at, for, for a narrow set of things, is completely appropriate because it is bespoke. There are you know, very unique traits to you know, some of these strategic situations. But for so much of the work that we buy, it's the same thing. And having to have you know, different inputs coming back to us from partners 
just adds inefficiency. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm buying what you're selling. And literally, I look forward to buying what you will be selling. And so so if I go to your uh, your website, uh, sixparsecs.com, can I go sign up to be notified when you're, you're ready to, to roll out? We do have a mailing list right now. It will become um, much more uh, focused. It just says, you know, stay notified. Mm-hmm. The product page will go up soon. Fantastic. Well, uh, I look forward to seeing what you've got because I must say that the content I've seen thus far has been fan- just fantastic and very high quality. So one thing that I have observed is that you develop a ton of content really quickly and it is just so information rich and dense. And can you tell me a little bit about what your creation process looks like? How, how do you manufacture the content that you do because it is so steeped in data and it's just just mind-blowing. Yeah, I think I've always been an efficiency freak. <laughs> I mean, that's just something that is a part of who I am. And then so my workflow uh, is, is actually not normal. Um, I don't look at every piece of content as a project. Like I do have to-do lists and I, I do have punch lists that I make every day and I have a, you know, kind of a broader high level one for, for the quarter. Um, but I generally tend to do data work and huge badges. Like I tend to collect uh, big stores of data and then, and then I think about, okay, where can I use this? How can I syndicate different types of analytics I can pull out of one data set or wh- what data sets in plural do I need to answer a broader or not even answer, explore a broader question. And then I'll do a lot of the upfront work and I'll have it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then so when I am dipping back into, you know, different charts, um, I have a lot of them made, mm-hmm. you know, especially because the data exploration insight discovery process, you have to be making while you're learning. Yeah. You, I mean, obviously, when you have 20,000 rows of data, you're not going to get anywhere by just looking at it, right? And then so in the exploration, I end up making a ton of charts. Um, none of them are pretty, by the way. I know, I know people are very appreciative of, you know, just the attention to the visual aesthetics. But in that exploration discovery process, I make a lot of ugly charts that appear to say nothing. Um, but in that process, I have a lot of thoughts, right? Um, and then, you know, I also have a very messy Word document. Um, it's not organized. It would not be navigable to any other human. But I have a lot of just fragments of thoughts, questions. Um, and then, you know, I'm out and about a lot. Uh, people have been very kind in taking an interest in my work, um, you know, wondering what I think about this and that. And then so I have a lot of interesting conversations. And then in those conversations, I bring up some of those fragmented thoughts. I want to know what other people think about them. Um, and of course, there are many people who have greater depth in specific areas than I do. Um, and then so I further develop my thoughts. <laughs> and then, you know, I have all of that pre-work, which feels very nebulous, you know? If, if uh, I actually had a boss and I had to give a status update, it would be very difficult. But that's why I can sit down in two days and I can grind out, you know, 10,000 words because I've done all the legwork. Well, that's kind of amazing. So you, bet you harvest your data, yeah. you go on this 
sounds like a something somewhere between an exploration and a wallow. <laughs> and you you really try to take the Rubik's cube and understand every single side. And in that process, you're doing a, a lot of uh, kind of looks sounds like ideation where you're not constraining yourself to what you think you're going where you think you're going. You're really just putting it all out there. And then you might do some light focusing, but then you go and you test. You go test with experts, and then that becomes a, a refining process that helps you narrow, helps you focus, help, helps you put a finer point on that. And then ultimately, it sounds like you go back and you, you dip into that, and then you make refined visualizations and specific content with that informed lens. Is that more or less what I'm hearing? Yes, absolutely. And the people aspect of that research is incredibly important because that's really currently the only antidote to the level of fragmentation and opacity that I've written about. If you want to pierce those these huge veils of fog, right? You really do have to do the legwork. You do have to cultivate, you know, trusting relationships with people who are on the front lines doing the work. Um, other people who have been so heavily invested in, in the progress of the industry, like Professor, Professor Bill Henderson, who's been, you know, obviously thinking and writing and, and doing that legwork for years, right? Um, one of the reasons he's, I think, so well-informed is because he's so well-connected. And the reason that he's so well-connected is because he tends to add value in every exchange. And then so people want to have that relationship with him. People are interested in his perspective. But there's a cumulative effect to that, right? Uh, the more conversations he has, the more forums that he's present for, and then, you know, the richer his insights become. And, you know, I try to learn from that <laughs> from a process standpoint. I think that is certainly something that helps um, my content have more of a pragmatic focus. I think I try to bring the perspectives I built, you know, when I, I was within a firm, mm-hmm. um, grappling with strategic questions for for the firm. And, you know, of course, it's a going concern, right? It's a commercial enterprise. Um, when I was a sci-fi shot, it was my job to figure out, well, how, how can we compete? How can we compete and win? <laughs> how can we grow profitably? And then so I think looking at the business of law from, from that perspective um, certainly puts a finer point on, on the questions I pose now, right? But in a more broader way, I, I am interested in better understanding the perspectives of the buyer because one of the reasons I think that firm uh, was so successful in driving behavioral change is that uh, the leadership of Sifar Shah really did buy into the notion that if you want to um, have sustainable competitive advantage as a law firm, you must understand the voice of the client. And then so much of my work at that firm had to do with, well, let's look at the market from the client's perspective. What are they trying to accomplish? And then so I think, you know, Going back years and years, I think my my uh, approach to trying to understand the market is to try to understand the human perspectives. Right, the market is made up of people, um, and you know those people work within organizations. But this is a huge disconnect. You smile, but I, I think that it is it is a huge disconnect because too many times I hear questions about, well, why is this company making this decision? Why is this firm doing this? And I tend to say, uh, corporations are not people. 
companies do not make decisions, firms do not make decisions, specific people within those companies are making decisions and that other people within that same organization are taking actions that are either aligned or not aligned with that decision, right? And then so all those variables you do have to take into consideration, but it's very difficult to think this way sitting at your desk. Like desk research can only get you so far. You gotta get out there and you gotta actually hear people talk. You have to ask them questions. You have to challenge their thinking a little bit. And then I, I also do think it's important to have line experience. It's important to go and try to do the work. It's important to watch people work um, because you're not going to understand people's constraints. So that's why I, I really don't like a lot of the talk about, you know, the industry is this way because lawyers are... Uh, tied to autonomy. They won't give it up. Um, it's because lawyers have all this pride of authorship that they can't they can't see their work as anything but bespoke. Um, are those things true? Probably. Probably. And like you do have to take them into consideration, but those are not the controlling factors here. <laughs> and you can't you have to you have to focus on things you can influence and change, right? Um, and all of that obscures the fact that everybody makes decisions, takes actions uh, within some some situation that has constraints, right? Uh, we are self-interested beings. Um, everybody has goals. Everybody has constraints. If you don't understand that context, um, it's very difficult to influence behavior. Um, if you just jump right to the dispositional factors that tend to be very stable, then all you're doing is criticizing people for how they are, right? That doesn't get you anywhere. I think there's some deep insights that you offered there. And one is that pretty much all of our work is human focused, if you really boil it down. And I'm glad that you jumped there because if, you, if we looked at your work from the outside, it would be easy to presume that, man, there's so much data, the analysis is so awesome that it doesn't build upon the human factor. And it is so intrinsic to the deep insights that you pull out because it is that combination of, you know, the let's just say the naively systemic, but also the what happens when it meets the carbon-based life forms and goes into practice. And I, I will remark that one of my frustrations about uh, practicing lawyers is many of them stay at their desk and don't come and see what it's like on the ground. And they don't have a deeper, richer sense of what is my client trying to accomplish when they ask me this question? Where does the work that I will provide back to them go? How does it get further refined and turned into something that moves the business forward? And if you're a practicing attorney and you are outside counsel and you cannot, you can't tell me how your work gets put into play by your client, then I think you have a real problem. And I, I'm concerned that it doesn't get taught earlier in people's careers because you're basically putting them into this trap where later on they're gonna be very expensive and they're not gonna be able to elevate their work because they can't take it to the refinement levels that ultimately make it worth paying these you know, outstanding, out, outlandish sums for. Which actually, if, the, if it's really good, it's totally worth, right? So thank you for taking us there because I, I think that that is something that gets overlooked and that really thinking about the human factors and understanding how things land on the ground and that truly the organizational decisions are decisions made by humans who 
act rationally within the bounded scope of their context explains a lot of what we see. And so I, I, I think that is a deep and rich insight that I hope people can latch onto because it helps explain so much of what we see. Yes, and I think if I were to put it in plainer language, um, things that look stupid or crazy from the outside, we shouldn't assume it's because the people doing those things are, are stupid or crazy because uh, that, that is the intrinsic value of management, right? Because the risk is that you can get a ton of smart people together, have them working very hard, and yet have an organization that does stupid or crazy things. Um, but then working backward from that and then assuming assuming that the people who work there are stupid and crazy, that is not the way to fix anything. Um, you know, I was talking to David Cambria yesterday and then he was saying something about, um, you know, I, there's people who dismiss people for being idiots. I think being an idiot should be a rebuttable presumption. That's, that's literally what he said. I like that. Yes. I think the idea that, you know, all, all the, we love to pile on our own industry, right? We're 10 years behind. We're so backwards. It's so slow. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I think all that should be a rebuttable presumption. <laughs> that's what I think. I So I, I think we have... We've had some side conversations where we both agree that people are acting rationally within their horizon, right? Yeah. Like within, and so I, I completely agree. And it goes down. So, so much of that lands here in the corporate context as like why why is that happening? And it really does turn down. Uh, it, a lot of it comes down to uh, siloed behavior. And as much as people are seeking a local maxima, mm -hmm. that doesn't take the bigger context into play, which is why management is actually really important because that should be the bridging function that helps people over there understand how their work fits into the work that's happening there and why we should be seeking a larger maxima that's not overly provincial. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more about the most important function of management, especially when you get to the middle layer. Mm -hmm. um, the, the most important, that manage, important thing that managers should be doing is explaining to their teams why they're doing anything. It's not how to do it, <laughs> especially in a very highly technical business like uh, software <laughs> or a very knowledge expertise-based a profession like the law, it's not about showing them or teaching them how to do it every time. After a while, uh, if counsel is competent, they know how to do it. Uh, what you need to be explain is, explaining is why. Why are we doing this now? Why is it important? Why is it important that we achieve this specific outcome? And then you let your teams run, right? And if you've done what you should have done in hiring the right people and making sure they have the skills and tools they need, then you'll find that your teams can run much faster. So I'm experimenting with uh, a, a three-layer model right now that I, I think I alluded to yesterday, which is really thinking of the base layer is how, right? So that is the very much a tactical mm -hmm. process. How does one do something? And then there's the what, which on some level gets into strategy. And then there's the why, which is the thing that is actually driving us, right? So what is the policy? What is the end state that we seek? And I am, I will admit that historically I have not done enough of the why and that as I'm trying to be a better leader and a better manager, I'm really trying to shift more of my effort away from the how and a little bit more into the what, but focusing way more on the why. 
and we'll see where it goes. It's it's an experiment. Yeah, so um, I like that model, and I have thoughts about it. As I I have thoughts about everything, but um, yeah, so I do want to talk about that just just very quickly. So you know, uh, what I wanted to do in in my profession in my career, no matter the context, like I knew that I wanted to be a strategist. Um, and I read really good advice um, online. Uh, Penelope Trunk, she gives very controversial uh, career advice. But uh, one of the, my favorite things I ever read is that if you're a strategist, you'll be doing strategy work no matter what your job. And you know, I found that to be true. I've been in very heavily operational roles, very high level coordinating roles, but no matter what I was doing, like I, I did end up thinking about strategy because that's, that's what I wanted to do. And then eventually, I, actually not even eventually, very quickly I was given a strategy role. Um, but I think the essence of strategy is deciding what to do and what not to do. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm a little bit biased because I just spent like two minutes saying how I love strategy. Um, but that middle layer, it, it gives you incredible uh, intellectual dexterity. Because as you're deciding what you should do and what you shouldn't do, you always do have to go back to the why. And if your goals are to survive contact with reality, you do have to give sufficient thought to the how, um, at least sufficient enough where you have to ask the question, can we do it? Right. And then so I think, you know, I really like your model, but I do think that that middle layer um, making good decisions in that middle layer requires you to flare in and out, you know, to the how and the why. And I think it's a it's a good model. Absolutely. And so I, I am in violent agreement. And that's why having line level experience is critical, because if you don't understand how your strategy lands on the ground, it often does not survive contact with reality, as you said. Yeah. So, you know, going back to one of your earlier comments and then so this may be the first controversial kind of like challenge I'll throw down to the to the clients um, here's a great example where I think I completely understand where the clients are coming from when they refuse to pay for first years <laughs> I do I do I, I absolutely do okay. you know um, I'm very conversant with uh, law firm economics and I'm very good with numbers I, I do understand but I think here I would point out there are second and third order effects when you change a legacy system, right? And you're trying to solve for problem X (laughs) and you do institute some solution Y, you do have to recognize there are downstream impacts that may cause more problems. And then so, uh, you know, certainly in the last 10 years is something that I find very concerning very concerning is uh, the level of investment in training young lawyers has gone down precipitously. Um, I think the impact on the profession, not only the business of law, but the profession, um, insidious. And then, you know, it not only does it cut off Obviously, obviously, career pathways for young lawyers, but then just the way that they're deployed, the way that they're developed, it, it influences everything that happens to them afterward. And then, so, you know, I would tell you, I agree. I think that in the first five years of a practitioner's career, certainly, you know, in a law firm setting, if you're going to be in the business of providing legal services to large corporations, you have to be, you have to have access 
to the client's working environment. Um, this does not happen enough. This does not happen, I, I want to say at all, but you know, most of the time it doesn't happen. So again, I'm just going to agree with you. So David Howard, uh, who's our uh, chief of uh, litigation uh, competition and uh, compliance, he and I talk about this quite a bit. And so Microsoft does not have a policy of our, our policies. We will we will pay. So we do not have any kind of prohibitions on paying for first years because we regard this as breaking the chain. Right. You need that orderly process of minting new attorneys. And if you're not going to pay for some amount of training, then later on, you're not going to get the talent you need. And so we are in complete agreement. So one thing that I found very interesting about my practice when I was coming along was I was a startup lawyer. And the interesting thing about being a startup lawyer is I was carrying a portfolio of something like 45 clients. Wow. It was great. And so if you think about a Gantt chart, right, you know, one of those staggered charts, if you draw a line through your stack of clients at any given time, you get every aspect of the life cycle. They're, you know, they're being born, they're being funded, they're ramping, they're going public, they're being sold, they're dying, they're doing all that. But one of the other things that's fantastic about being a startup lawyer is until they get to a financed state, they want to run really lean, mm-hmm. which means if you are the associate and you will pick up your phone and they know that you're cheaper, they will call you. Mm-hmm. And so you get direct client contact really, really early. And it's scary because, again, like you mostly don't know what you're doing, but then you scramble off and you go ask questions, you do research, you, you but that's the process, right? And then ultimately you check back in with the partner because that's where the training happens, where they say, oh, no, 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 this, you're close, but yes. this is what you needed to do to make this spot on. And that was how I got to minimum viable lawyer. That's how I sharpened my knife. I love that. Well, I mean, it's, so I think you have to get there, right? There is, yeah. there's, um, there's a threshold of yeah. kind of self-actuated confidence, uh, competence, yes. where you can then add the other building blocks on for yourself. And if you don't ever get to that point, I agree that the vector of your career is fundamentally altered for the rest of your career. Yes. And I'm very concerned that exactly what you're talking about is happening, that that training, that those repetitions with the client, that that experience and that the, the really the, the coming in and saying, like, no, 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 this is how we do this is not happening. Yeah. And I think this dialogue about the training of, of the future lawyer, right? Um, what what do 21st century lawyers need to have in terms of skills? What does it mean to be practice ready? And so much of that dialogue, I feel like, actually happens um, maybe not at the best resolution, because a lot of times uh, in this industry, and this is this is also a practice I'd like to try to shift a little bit. Um, if a solution doesn't fix the entire problem all at once, then it's worthless. <laughs> Um, come on. <laughs> like, that's not that's not helpful, and that's not how big problems get solved, right? Um, and then this reliance on institutions, like, or, or the, the focus on, like, well, whose fault is it anyway? <laughs> you know, like, law schools. Law schools are falling down on their job. The ABA, uh, they're, not, they're not doing their job, you know, watching the law schools. Um, law firms, like, they, they should pay to train. Clients, they refuse to pay. And then it's just, like, a Mexican standoff of finger-pointing and not fixing anything, right? Um, 
But I do think that there has to be some level of responsibility that that rests with the individual, right? The lawyers. Um, I think there has to be a shift in mindset that, you know, you're not going to be ready for the rest of your career when you finish law school. (laughs) You're barely ready for your first job. But the thing is, that's true for every profession, every profession. You're going to have to keep learning stuff for the rest of your career. And sometimes that's within your chosen domain, right? Sometimes you know, you have to learn more about about the law, you have to get better at it, you have to go from minimum viable lawyer to if you wanna be a market leading lawyer, you need to add some features, man. Um, But then sometimes it's gonna be enabling competencies. And I think that in my experience, if if I tend to make a generalization about lawyers it will be this that they they are not and it's not because of anything stable it's because i think they haven't been told enough uh the the feedback mechanisms the incentives that they see uh have not communicated to them you need to know things other than the law (laughs) right um basic basic tools of your trade no longer a dictaphone although you know if you could learn how to use your computer that has a dictaphone on it, so you know if that's what you want to do, you can. But you know, basic, um, basic office uh, software, you should know. Uh, you're a wordsmith, you should know how to use Microsoft Word, <laughs> right? You're a deal lawyer, you should know how to use Microsoft Excel. These things, um, they do have to be said explicitly, and I think it's a, it's being said more often explicitly. Um, but in terms of other things, other things includes business. <laughs> you want to serve some of the largest corporations in the world? You better know how business works, right? But then the, the thing about business is it, it goes back to people. Uh, business happens when people do things. Like you do have to understand what people do at work all day like what your clients do at work all day. You do have to understand there are differences between working at a product company and working at a services company, right? Um, You have to understand there's a difference between working on the cost side and working on the revenue side. You have to understand that it's different for your clients if they work in a regional office versus global headquarters. What are they thinking about? Who are they talking to? What do they have to answer for? (laughs) Who are their stakeholders? These are very specific, tangible things about work context, right? That's how you understand the client, and you do have to dig deep. And this whole decade-long debate about clients saying, and and they say, we've told you over and over and over again, you have to understand our business. (laughs) Right? And firms are like, oh, we're trying, but we can't. <laughs> um, no, I don't mean to laugh. I don't mean to laugh. We can but... laugh. It's okay. We can laugh. <laughs> but it's because, you know, no matter what kind of brain power is walking in the halls of, you know, the glorious halls of big law, nobody, nobody can really understand all of the sectors that comprise a Fortune 1000. Uh, business is too complex. The pace of life is too fast. Lawyers must specialize in a few industries that fit together. There is no other way for them to truly, truly become that business, trusted business advisor, right? Um, and I think 
here's a great example, great example where um, people are not allowed to do that right now, though, in the current state because the the firms have not made that decision. Most firms have not decided where they are going to specialize in terms of their client sectors, right? And then so the incentive systems for the lawyers working within those firms, it's very hard for them to decide, I'm going to be a technology lawyer. Like maybe it's easy at Cooley, maybe it's easy at Fenwick and West, maybe it's easy at Perkins Cooley, but then let's say you're at... Um, I don't know, like Hogan Lovells or some other gigantic firm. Like, sure, like it seems like you have so many options, right? You walk into a global firm, and as a young associate, sure, you have option value, high option value. But that means you have to make some decisions because option value at some point expires to zero, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and I think. It's important for individual lawyers to understand they're going to have to make decisions and they're going to have to make investments and they cannot do everything. You will not be good at anything. So if you want to get from minimum viable lawyer (laughs) to a high value lawyer, um, it's going to require you to do thinking about your own career. Now, of course, clients and firms and law schools, institutions can do things to help individuals. Um, They should be doing stuff, um, more stuff than they're doing now, I believe. But, you know, one institution is not going to fix everything. No. It's a shared problem. It demands shared response. So if I were an associate going into a law firm fresh out of law school now, I would be putting together my business plan and deeply understanding what is the platform that I have joined, understanding the strengths understanding the internal complements to the lane that I think I want to play in because I don't I think if you don't have a plan you're not going to put together the experiences that take you from minimum to high value and if you are if you're left to the trade winds blowing you in the right direction it's a lot of risk to shoulder for for no good reason and if I look down the road it, it, I find it interesting that you're, you're mentioning this because I, I you know I, I have a, a view on some of these things the the presumption that we hire one firm to do all our work is just not realistic. Right? No. And so what we do is we partner with many firms and we try to pick the things that they do really well and we try to monopolize that as much as we can. Right. And so the idea that there is one major platform firm that we go to and we, we just want them for, for one stop shopping for everything is not practical. And I see the future as having more unbundling, not more bundling, because we're going to see, more, I suspect, more specialization that results in more success and excellence that's going to concentrate our buying patterns with the firms that have specific expertise on the things that we need. And what we will do is we will ask them to partner. So even where historically there may have been closer complements within the same firm, we may actually say, hmm, I can actually, I can get a better complement with this other firm than even going within your firm. And so now I'm going to ask you to operate across your organizational boundaries mm-hmm. and to deliver success to me as a client, regardless of what may have been your, your historical separations. So. Okay, so... So many thoughts. Oh my god, I don't even know which one to go first. <laughs> um, okay, I'm about to just nerd out super hard on the business of law. Go. Okay, so the specialization question has so many implications for market dynamics, right? Specialization at the individual level, and then at the firm level, and then at the market level. 
Um, in my view, in my view, one of the critical drivers of market inefficiency is is inefficient, inefficient, ineffective specialization mm, okay. at the firm level, um, and then extremely noisy, ineffective signaling by buyers and sellers of legal services. So I'll give you a perfect example. Um, in the last five years, I think the only emergent uh, practice area where there has been explosive growth of new spend, new new allocation of legal spend, has been uh, data security and privacy. Um, that has really been the only growth area, like truly greenfield. There was no money being spent on that 20 years ago, billions now. Um, and then so you will see, and I think there are data sets, I'm looking for good data sets because I'm going to prove this point, that um, within the span of four years, the number of data privacy experts in the AMLAW 200 just exploded. <laughs> overnight, overnight, everybody's an expert. Um, and then so one of the things I want to tell law firms is that uh, when you make those claims of expertise, um, and you're found to be less than credible, it damages your competitive position in ways you cannot even measure. Ways you cannot even measure. The risks are, are too high, it's not worth it, right? And then of course in emerging areas of law, there is an entrepreneurial opportunity for lawyers to become experts. But there has to be a recognition that that requires institutional investment and individual investment. And many law firms are really, really good at this. They are, they've been good at it uh, since the 20s. You know, developing true expertise in emerging areas of law. But now what is happening um, with the pro proliferation of content marketing, um, the explosion in crap content, <laughs> excuse my French, um, is that it is now seemingly cheaper for firms to claim expertise they don't have. But then the collateral costs are huge, right? The fee earner time that it takes to generate garbage content that's basically duplicative of every other blog post that's landing same day, right? Same day. They see this as a differentiator and it's not. Um, and some firms will tell you you have to do it because everybody else is do doing it. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because uh, truly, truly, you could sign up for 20 different newsletters. There are 20 firms will send you the same news alert. Like firms have begun to create newsrooms within the firm and they are not equipped to do that. And they're not making that investment intentionally. So I think that, you know, specialization when added to kind of the, the marketing hype that we're seeing from firms is, makes legal buy incredibly expensive, right? Because then now you have to sift through a much larger group to choose your counsel. And I'm sure it's annoying for you. Um, but then also buyers are not signaling clearly what they need, how important it is, and how much they're gonna spend. <laughs> um, law firms are left guessing a lot of times. Um, I think there's a tendency to try to maybe transplant negotiation tactics that works for like, I don't know, like washers and dryers. 
like, we'll buy, we'll buy 20 million, then we'll get a 40% discount. Okay, like, that completely makes sense, but you understand that in those, um, like, okay, let's just, let's just take manufacturing industrials, just, like, literally commoditized things, widgets that you can buy, right? Usually when buyers secure those kinds of discounts, uh, there's a purchase order. <laughs> like, they're saying they will buy that much. Many times, corporate buyers of legal services, they want to negotiate on hypotheticals. Well, if we spend X amount with you um, across this incredibly diverse uh, array of categories, right? If we spent that much with you, how much would you give us in discounts? And then the entire buying process is just stunningly, stunningly ineffective and soul crushing, honestly. Um, and I, I think that's not a great wa- way to transact business and certainly no way to build a partnership, right? And then so I think specialization does affect um, very specific mechanics of legal buy in, in a number of ways that I think people are not thinking about. When people make um, maybe you know, not, not so uh, rigorous claims of expertise, you know why they're doing it, right? Going back to the idea that, that everyone's making following some rational strategy, even if that doesn't result in rational choices, you understand why an e-discovery lawyer might want to uh, pivot, rebrand themselves as a, a information governance data security expert. And of course, that is an opportunity. And of course, some have done that successfully. <laughs> some have built upon their experience to, to have valuable expertise in that area. But you know, not all of them have. So I think this idea that you have to be really, really good at what you do and you have to do fewer things, that is, I could not agree more violently. I mean, that is literally the crux of my message to law firms is that you must play to win. Um, You cannot be playing to play in so many markets and so many practices. Um, There are only a few firms with the scale and size and experience operating at that scale. Um, that could manage the complexity. Most firms that have uh, pursued aggressive expansion of headcount have not kept up in terms of investing in their infrastructure and business talent to manage this competitive complexity. And then so that's why I'm sure you're getting some RFP responses that make no sense at all. (laughs) I wish I could take a picture of your face right now. So there, you, you've said so much truth. So part of the reason that we are going to activate more comparative bidding uh-huh. is to do more testing. Okay. Because we do have this issue where there's a lot of noise into the system. And it makes, it, it makes the selection process more challenging. But we're also working, so we have the benefit of working at a certain scale. Mm-hmm. And so we're also going to be doing some things that we're to, we will try to actively remove some information asymmetry. So for example, we're going to be instituting a more rigorous feedback process so that when we test the market, we get a sense of what quality did we get for our purchase and do we want to go back there? And so, you know, I, I think we will have to continue to experiment and, and try out new partners, but we need to also figure out ways to fail out fast if it's not working. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. Okay, fail out fast. I, I, I want to comment on that. So one thing that I 
don't like about a lot of corporate legal buy is this idea that you're going to reevaluate all your firms on a regular cadence. Okay, doing it every every year to me is ridiculous. Like that's a ton of work. That's a huge lift every year if you're going to revisit your panel, then why have a panel? Can I can I add precision? Yes. So the people who do work are people, not firms. Exactly. And so where we ultimately want to go is being able to develop feedback with the granularity of, let's call it conventionally the timekeeper, but really on the per-person basis. Because for me, the most valuable relationships are where we find somebody early-ish in career, uh-huh. and we find somebody who can grow with us, and they'll work with us for a couple decades. They learn our business. They master it. They become that really maximum value-delivering attorney. And so what I want to do is find ways to identify the, those people earlier, and so we can work with them for a really long time. But on the other side, I also, on an individual basis, want to start identifying people who really are not delivering effective value for us. And I'm not, I, I do not want to say that this process is simple because teams deliver many projects. And so we'll need to find ways to you know, regress out some patterns and other things, examine work product. I, I, I don't have the, the answer for this, but I agree with you that I'm not really talking about failing out firms. I'm saying the people who do the work, we want to identify those who do it exceptionally well and, and send more work their way and not send work to those who don't. Yeah. And there's so much about what you said, right? Uh, right now where we could splice that out and talk for an hour on on each each clause of what you just said but um, one thing I want to emphasize uh, from what how you talk generally about about your relationships with firms and specifically at the trusted advisor forum is and this is something I really like uh, this is not a test <laughs> right <laughs> like you want your firms to succeed not fail right? It's not a test. It's not an exam like you're in school. But many, many, many panel reviews in corporate legal buy are structured as a test, right? A test that you have to take every year. Now, we're talking about not all legal work is so complex, but but let's just take a step back, okay? When we compare it to, again, making washers like nuts and bolts, when we think about like widgets, when we think about, you know, those types of businesses, relatively speaking, in the grand scheme of things, legal buy is still fairly complex, right? We're talking about, in some cases, engagements that take years to deliver. And then so when you're revisiting those relationships on a yearly basis and you're putting every single firm through their paces and making them feel like they have to pass a series of, frankly, arbitrary tests, it absolutely erodes this idea that clients are trying to partner with firms strategically. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric about collaborative partnership, you know, the value challenge that we're supposed to work together for value. But in many ways, in many ways, clients behave in ways that undercut that message. When clients come back to firms and they say, we want a 30% discount, like across, across all services, um, and we want you to freeze rates for five years, like that is not that that does not have any collaborative uh, element to it. That's not what the firms are hearing. The firms are hearing, we want to pay less because we're not. You're not worth what you're asking, and then that is not a good starting point for a um, 
any kind of vision of co-prosperity, <laughs> um, there is actually no value element in that request. Because when clients make that type of request, they're giving no signal at all about which work is important, which tranches of work are truly price insensitive, which uh, bundles of work are, you know, like you said, it's all the same. So you guys need to find a way to do it more efficiently. Like they're not showing any concern for whether the firms can provide services of acceptable quality <laughs> um, with economics that will, will ensure that the firm will survive. And you know, the uh, and I know, I know it's not popular to talk about the survival of the, 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 the richest firms in America. Like it's just not a message that's well received, but I don't care. It, we live we live in a capitalist society. <laughs> We're again talking about commercial enterprises, they are going concerns. It is fine for for law firm partners to think about profit. Like they should be thinking about profit. They should think he, be thinking about the long-term viability of businesses because dude, there are people who work there, right? They're not just they're not just thinking always about the PPP or what whatever comp they're taking home. When firms go out of business, people lose jobs. Um, and in the next downturn, firms will go out of business. People will lose jobs. Um, and some of them will be good people. Um, not all of them maybe, but some of them will be good people. So I think, yeah, like it is important to think systemically about how, how should all this work. Um, and I do think clients have incredible influence. Um, I think you guys should get together and, and think of ways to use that for the really collective good because so, so many of the problems that we are talking about, and again, I'm not, I'm not about blame-based narratives. I'm not saying it's anybody's fault because that doesn't even matter and, and I don't think it's actually any one party's fault. But the reason that I, I think I have this call to action to, to clients it's because you are best positioned to create solutions. It's your best position to lead change. And for that reason, you guys should. Because I am telling you right now that law firms cannot do it. They cannot do it by themselves. Like, you cannot innovate legal buy without the buyer's buy-in, <laughs> right? No pun intended. Um, if we want to make legal buy more effective, more efficient, buyers have to lead that change. Um, and it can't be one buyer. It has to be a coalition of buyers that share similar enough characteristics that a manageable number of firms are invested in serving you. Uh, amen. Uh, so we are trying to move more of our spend to value-based precisely for this reason. The way that we construct our panels is in many ways, an examination of what, how is our relationship working? Mm -hmm. Are you operating relationally rather than purely transactionally? Are you taking advantages of all the things that we're making available as part of our program, our panel program, so that you can learn more about our business, so that you can field teams that are more effective, so that you can deliver creative solutions, so that you can you know, really take advantage of the, the service area that we create. And so I, I agree with you that putting them on uh, a treadmill uh, that really looks like a transactional experience, why should we expect something other than transactional responses from them? So I, I, I think you're right. So I, I wonder if you'd be willing to 
look forward a little bit and, and say like, okay, so we, we have these challenges that we face. Um, and one thing that we do need, and so this, I think this is building on like the, the buyers need to start asking for things a little bit differently. I think it segues very nicely into some writing you've done recently. Mm-hmm. And so you did this amazing three-part series that really unpacks the, <laughs> the stumbling box for legal for innovation in the legal market. And I'm wondering if you could just take a few minutes and just walk us through it and, and give us just a little bit of a primer on that. Sure. So the three-part arc was organized, um, you know, as and, and let me let me back up actually. So the intent behind that series was to really, really try to take a holistic view of legal innovation and all the different pockets in the industry in which I believe innovation efforts are are, are funded. And I start with funding because. Um, I I really want to make this point very clearly. Innovation is not free. (laughs) Innovation is not free. Um, Innovative efforts do not always bear fruit. So there is risk. There is cost and there is risk and it takes work. Now, that's not to say it's optional. Innovation is an imperative. And then so I think those investments must be monitored and managed, right? Um, so having said that, having said that, because there, there's been this sentiment in the industry that if you talk too much about how hard it is or how expensive it is, you'll dampen innovation. Um, no, I think that, that uh, falsely representing the, the costs, that's not going to help anyone. So uh, funding, to me, is a very important aspect of, of the innovation decision-making process because every organization must decide how they're going to innovate, where they're going to invest. And then so I I wanted to cover that in the series. And then so part one is access to capital. Who is funding innovation and how? And then naturally, uh, that was the part where it made the most sense to cover the startup activity because there is a huge, huge uptick in in, uh, funding activity for legal tech startups as well as service providers um, and then, you know, new entrants to the market. Um, So please, I I won't get into specifics here because it would take too long. Please go check it out. Uh, It's lots of data, lots of interesting facts and tidbits in that that part. But the upshot, spoiler, um, my analysis is that access to capital is not really the barrier to innovation because there is there is significant capital uh, funding innovation. Now, I tend to think that capital is not, not working as hard as it should or is not working as well as it should in terms of um, actual returns to the end user of legal services. I don't think that capital is returning, you know, appreciable improvements in buyer experience and outcome quality, certainly not in access to justice. Um, so then I wanted to look at other other barriers. <laughs> um, so the second part is access to markets, where I, I really do see a lot of problems. Um, so one of the issues that I covered in that post is the uncoupling of the buyer and the user in B2B environments. And I think this is, I know I said that in a super technical way um, because I want to be precise, but this is something that if uh, corporate legal counsel and law firms would truly internalize this idea, I believe that it would, uh, it would lead to great strides 
great strides in improvement in, in um, client orientation, <laughs> in client service, what really understanding what the business values because the users, really, the end users of business uh, business legal services is the business, right? Um, I think that it would help firms understand why their lawyers are not, not able to uh, deliver work product in a way that's usable, <laughs> because usable implies a user, right? Um, I really liked that construct, users versus buyers, because it takes this abstraction, the market, and it puts a human face and more concrete actions like behaviors uh, around an abstract idea, right? Buying and using are things that people do. <laughs> so, uh, I, and I do believe that innovation teams and legal, legal ser- services right now, they don't have efficient access to buyers. <laughs> Or users, and then so I'll, we've been talking about legal buy, and I'm very interested in improving legal buy. So I will I will add a couple more things here. Um, there are economic buyers, and then there are procedural buyers. Um, one thing that I find very frustrating as an industry analyst and somebody who's invested in seeing seeing progress is. I don't know why there's so much secrecy around who the economic buyer is and what they want. I think it's a negotiation tactic that uh, some clients think by withholding information, they'll get a better deal from their firms. Um, I, I'm just going to throw down the gauntlet here and say no. No, it's not helping you. It's not helping the firms. It's hurting everyone. Please stop. Please Please try to articulate what you actually want, what's actually important to you. Um, and then firms will still bid. <laughs> firms are still going to compete. Like they understand you have many options. So withholding information about how you would like services delivered and how important this particular bundle of work is, that, that has no bearing on the negotiation except to make it um, soul-crushingly, painfully bad. (laughs) If you want firms to give you better pricing proposals, you must give them information because, dude, we're not selling you Amway products. (laughs) Like, we're trying to design something that's going to really help you achieve your goals. And firms can't do it. Firms can't do it unless you say what's important like and maybe maybe clients don't have the language i i understand um some of this is very new to a huge swath of the marketplace and so i know it's not intentional but i'm just saying some of the buying behavior uh is not helping the buyer or the seller um and then the procedural buyers i think maybe there's a skills shortage in in how to buy and how to have the conversation, how to structure the process uh, on both sides, buyer and seller. But, you know, procurement is a, is a word tinged with much resentment <laughs> in the legal industry. But I will say this, there, there is technical rigor and expertise in corporate procurement that needs to be adapted and applied to legal buy. I'm not suggesting we hand over legal buy to procurement because that is not something that is going to work. There is a high threshold of domain knowledge that's required 
to even frame frame the business case for a legal buy, <laughs> there is a high threshold of legal expertise that's required to evaluate the options. Um, there's an even higher threshold to design the mechanisms to evaluate. And then for corporations to hand over that job to procurement is um, incredible risk for almost no upside. So that's, I'm not afraid to take a position, so I have taken my position on that issue. Um, but buyers of legal services still have things they could learn from the procurement discipline. Uh, sellers of legal services certainly could learn um, but again, this is this is an area where the learning must happen collaboratively. And then so access to markets was the second part and the three-parter, I, I really think it's important and I will work on making some of these ideas more accessible. I will be publishing other content on, in that area, but um, segue into the third part was uh, access to talent, access to talent. Um, and I didn't, of course, these are huge, broad, deep topics, and I didn't, I didn't get to everything because one can't mention everything in every post, right? Um, but I think access to talent is a huge problem. Access to innovation talent, access to business talent, huge problem. We don't have uh, pipelines for business talent to work in the legal industry. There is no pipeline. Um, that's why there is a perpetual shortage of mid-levels um, and junior talent because I get back to the funding problem now. Who's going to train them? <laughs> who's going to train them, right? Um, and then, you know, the people who are... I don't want to say qualified because I, I don't want to mix this up with credentials, especially in the current state where there are no educational institutions or really certification programs that would even say, this person understands legal procurement. This person understands legal operations. All of these functions and specializations are way too new um, for us to be relying on, on traditional mechanisms, right? Um, so when I say qualifications, I, I just, I think I literally mean skills. Skills, domain knowledge, like these are two huge pillars, right? Um, and like I just said, the threshold for domain knowledge is extremely high. And then that's where I think experience comes in, line experience. Uh, and then in terms of the skills, we haven't defined the skills yet, right? Like there is not even a good inventory of the skills that are needed. And in that post, I gave one example of, um, okay, how would a law firm make more rigorous strategic decisions based on insights and analytics? And then if you check out that post, um, check out that graphic, it is a huge number of, of specific skills that you can see immediately in my, my uh, again, spoiler, my broader point is, okay, it's not one person. Because one thing that I see done very often that frustrates me to no end is that law firms and law departments are like, okay, we'll just hire a legal ops person. <laughs> or we'll just hire a data person. Or we'll just hire a blank person. And then the thing, um, you know, the, the people who know me well will laugh because they can see my face right now and they can picture my face when I say, a person is not a solution. <laughs> a person is not a solution. 
one person can't fix it all. Um, so it's not one person. It's an incredible variety and, and depth that you need to solve a, a problems in a new way, right? You can't, you can't solve problems with the same mindset that created them. You can't solve problems with the same skills that you had when you created them. Um, and then so, you know, I think it's important to recognize we need more and different skills in the industry. But it's also important to remember that it's not, it's not about creating a new group either, right? When you ingest new capabilities into an organization, uh, systems thinking demands that the, the existing structure must also change to integrate those new capabilities and then take them to market together. Apply them holistically to the problems that exist. Um, because when you don't have that recognition, you're just creating more silos, right? More problems. Going back to that earlier point about, yeah, if you're trying to solve problem X and you have solution Y, you do have to understand there's downstream impacts. You may be creating more problems. And then so I think um, talent gap is a huge problem. The access to markets is a huge problem. I think capital less so, but that was the three-part arc on, on barriers to innovation. I thought it was a brilliant explanation of really the macro picture that we're seeing. And I'll just note selfishly that I love the fact that there is not as much rigor around who gets hired into these roles because I'm exhibit A for not ticking off many of the boxes. So I, I think it's fabulous that it's just a, the Wild West out here. It allows me to just show up and, and drop in. It's, it's great. Well, I agree with you, actually. Um, you know, this is, this is how I explain my career to my friends who... Um, you know, I used to joke like they have real careers, by which I meant they have established career paths, right? Um, I, I told them, oh, it's like Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rules exactly, but you can get shot at any time. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but no, I love it. I, I absolutely think certainly we're uh, working on the front lines of change in, a, in an industry that has appetite to change, has high interest in change. That's another uh, message I'd like to pivot a little bit. When when we talk about change in the legal industry, there's a lot of talk about resistance. There's a lot of talk about you know trying to give people something that they don't even want. I disagree. I see a ton of uh, hunger in the market for something better. Um, I think a lot of firms are really, really willing <laughs> and um, eager to try new things. I think clients certainly are ready for something better. And then so I think to be working in that kind of industry at that point in time, there's opportunity everywhere. And then, yeah, I love I love that. I, I think that's how I um, had my industrious career at Cypharth take off so quickly. I learned a great deal very quickly. I've been able to do you know, really amazing, interesting, fascinating work, and it would not be possible in a extremely, you know, stagnant industry the way that it's made out to be. I don't, I don't think of legal that way. I think of it as an ocean of opportunity. I agree, and I agree that there are both those of us on both sides are are trying to make it better. And I'm wondering if this is a good segue to talk about why you're in town. Uh, so. We asked for your help with uh, a trusted advisor forum that we hosted on campus 
in lovely Redmond, Washington uh, yesterday. And the general construct was we asked 13 of our partners to go off and do a little bit of a homework assignment and think about innovation stories that they could bring back to us that ideally demonstrably demonstrated or demo, <laughs> demonstrated improvement of legal services to Microsoft. Ideally, one that was backward-looking, one that was forward-looking, but we added, we allowed some flexibility within that. And we had an all-day event yesterday where we invited the presenting teams, and I, I will also note that uh, I, I put uh, my team under the microscope as well for that. We had uh, internal clients, and we also invited uh, external folks. So we had uh, scholars like Bill Henderson uh, show up. We, we had other uh, uh, clients of these firms, uh, and we had just some of our, our colleagues from the community. Um, and you were kind enough to put together, uh, let's just call it, uh, I don't want to call it a scoring sheet, but I guess it, it, it was, a, let's call it a feedback form. How about yes. that? Yes, a feedback form. A very elegant, uh, efficient, and lightweight feedback form, which allowed attendees to, in real time, provide structured feedback to the presenters. Uh, well, I should say, collect in, in real time. I think we're going to do some, some work after the fact to digest the insights and the outcomes. But as somebody who has a broad view across many purchasers, many providers, what did you think? And how can we take that forward and make it better so that it has more systemic impact? Yeah, I want to... I. I have so many thoughts. Uh, first of all, I enjoyed the day immensely. Um, I think the event itself, the initiative itself, uh, is amazing. Exactly what we need more of uh, in the industry, in the sense that uh, people have to hear each other talk. I'm gonna say that again. People have to hear each other talk. Uh, there is a time and place for closed-door conversations. There is a time and place for difficult conversations. There's constructive dialogue, collaborative, um, you know, work between client and firm in the singular. But uh, in terms of how to improve, what we're trying, what is working, what is not working, those discussions need to happen in some manageable forum that invites comment, that invites conversation, two-way exchanges of ideas or multi-way exchanges of ideas. And I emphasize all of this because without such forums, the legal industry will be like a room full of children um, who either have or haven't been told that you shouldn't stick metal objects into electrical outlets, <laughs> whether or not they've been told. Um, this will be a room full of children that feel that they have to stick every fork into every single outlet. Um, I think, you know, this idea that every, every organization should be commended for trying new things, I agree. It takes a great deal of courage um, for any human being to try something new in front of an audience of their peers. <laughs> it's one of the most primal fears in the, the uh, animal parts of our brain. <laughs> um, and in that sense, I, I know that it, it is very taxing work. Um, so they should certainly be commended, but that is separate from the consideration of, well, going back to the other point I made, it's not, it's not free. It's a lot of work by people whose time is very valuable, right? And then so collectively, we should be taking every precaution 
to ensure that 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 courage <laughs> and that time and that effort is being put to good use. And that means learning not only from our own mistakes, but from everyone's mistakes. Um, and there will be missteps. Not everything is going to be game changing. <laughs> like that expectation needs to change. Um, I think so. So this this effort to create a forum to have that dialogue is is so important. And I hope that this is something that will diffuse, something that will spread, something that other clients will be interested in doing, and something that firms will continue to participate in. And I think I, I do want to give, um, you know, ample recognition to the firms that showed up in every sense of the word, not just show up physically here, but like really showed up. Um, really did the work, really did the thinking, really put in the hours um, to participate and engage. So I think, you know, those are my comments, kind of initial reactions to the event. Um, in terms of, you know, the implications for the industry, I this is one of the things I'll say over and over again because I think it bears repeating. We have shared challenges that demand shared response. And then so the only way to do that is to work on them together, right? Together. Um, so, you know, I think really open innovation is something that we should learn from. And it's been done in other industries. It does need to be adapted and, and um, you know, applied a little differently to legal. But you see some of these efforts uh, take off in healthcare, where they also have systemic challenges that are too costly or too complex for, for one company or one enterprise to tackle. Um, so I think open innovation, innovation alliances are gonna be very important. Now, you know, when it gets further from the ideation stage to, to shaping something viable, again, you know, we're commercial enterprises, there is a commercial element. Um, some of them will get more complicated in terms of uh, creating partnerships that make financial sense, economic sense for all parties involved. But I think as an early, like as a first step, I think it was a phenomenal event. Um, in terms of the the ideas that were presented, um, you know, I'll give I'll give my reactions, or my candid reactions. Um, I think that I. I was not surprised actually that uh, so many of the what was presented was forward facing rather than than um, you know things that had been done and tested. And the reason I'm not surprised is because well it feels safer to talk about an idea, right? And then so I don't I don't I don't blame them at all. Um, I think a lot of the ideas were good in the sense that um, they most of them showed very good understanding of the challenge at hand. And at the idea phase, that's really all I look for. <laughs> um, because I also wanna say something that I hope people will remember and, and either ask me about <laughs> or repeat. Um, ideas are everywhere. Execution is everything. And then so this notion that, you know, you can have a brilliant idea, um, yeah. It's it's happened once or twice in history that the idea was amazing. Like when people figured out, you know, gravity, that was that was an that was a pure idea that was amazing. <laughs> right? Um in business, it's literally never happened. <laughs> like ideas are nothing. 
execution is is everything. And then so I think um, what what I'm trying to get at here is that uh, nearly every idea that people have is not going to work. It's not going to work in the form that you thought of. And I think the sooner we internalize this as an industry, the faster we'll move. Because we spend way too much time having ideas and not enough time working. Um, and the willingness to you know, throw out the idea and have it like kicked to death, um, that's how ideas actually become good. Like That's how ideas actually get executed. Um, in order to survive contact with reality, you have to test them, right? Um, and then so that means being open to feedback, being open to um, failure in the most manageable way possible. Like, trust me, you want that feedback very early on. You do, before you spend a year or even a month or even a week, um, that's what you want. And then one related, related, I think, myth, very popular myth I wanna, I wanna try to address today is that um, you know, what makes ideas good is, is originality <laughs> or novelty. That's not what makes an idea good. Because truly, truly, if you have a far out idea that no one's ever had before, it could be that you're gonna be a billionaire. <laughs> That's that an outside possibility, yes. But far more likely is that um, it's probably not a good idea. Because one characteristic of good ideas is that they occur to almost everyone. Um, and then a very tightly correlated myth is that, you know, um, good ideas are easy to execute. No. Sometimes good ideas are, they're still good ideas. Of, of things we need to solve problems that matter, and it could still be incredibly difficult to implement. <laughs> and you know, you just have to decide if it's worth the lift, right? But I, I think there's a lot of confusion about ideas and innovation. Um, so yeah, I, I thought the ideas that I heard yesterday, so many of them were, were absolutely worth workshopping and exploring, um, but I hope I hope the participating firms are hearing everything I'm saying about um, you know like I wouldn't necessarily jump up and down and just celebrate like it's here the future is here <laughs> we fixed everything yesterday we disrupted everything yesterday um, I'm not I'm not doing that but I think I mean I think this is fantastic fantastic I I am giving rave reviews right now honestly. Um, in terms of you know the event, you know I, I do want to see what I what I would love to see next year. Um, I would love to see next year a little bit more guidance from you actually, a little bit more direction from the Microsoft team on okay, what problems do you want to fix first? And it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest problem, right? Um, but I, I would love it if a client team would sit down and give more specific signals to their providers. So like specific problem statements of this, yes. is, this is pain I feel right help now. alleviate this pain for yes. me. Yes. Okay. Yes. Excellent. Because I think that would create um, 
a little bit more structure because in, in any kind of ideation design process, constraints are your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would actually make their effort a little bit um, more efficient if they, if they were going at a problem. Would you recommend that we even consider having the teams potentially involve a client that goes through the process with them? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I think that that would inject that immediate focus on human beings, mm-hmm. um, on buyers, mm-hmm. if not users. Um, I think that it would give the, the firms immediate feedback mechanisms as they're prototyping things, as they're, um, as they're trying things if they could actually hear the voice of the client as they're working. I think we could potentially go to the user level because the counseling team, if they were so desirous, could actually bring in their end user who consumes what they produce too. Right, and this goes exactly directly at that part two of my three-part arc about access to buyers and users. And see, that would actually be, I think, an exception for a law firm to be testing new ideas directly with the users of services. Mm -hmm. I think that might be a huge kind of accelerant um, from taking this event to an amazing start to actually pushing it down the the, um, like R&D pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Pushing firms to actually build and, and, and learn from real real world feedback, I think that that would um, elevate the value of the event even further. But I think it's an amazing start, and it's something that I hope to see more of. Well, we're gonna try. Uh, it's it's all an experiment. We mostly don't know what we're doing, but we're taking a step forward, and you know, course correcting where <laughs> we find that we stepped in the wrong direction. You know. I'm somebody who, who says that all the time, like, well, don't know what I'm doing exactly, but I'm figuring it out, trying things. Um, you know, and other people have told me, eh, don't sell yourself short. So I, I would tell you the same thing because, you know, anytime you're trying to do something new, of course, <laughs> of course we don't know what we're doing, but it doesn't mean we're not thinking. We have a hypothesis here. Yes, I, I want exactly. to be very clear. We, we exactly. have a hypothesis we're testing. It's not just exactly. wandering in the dark without any testing and, and feedback. I think it's pretty structured exploration. I think it was a very thoughtfully designed, constructed. Um, the planning and execution is excellent, by the way. I, I do want to give... Um, a shout out to all the people who did the work because again, these things don't just come together as if by magic, right? Great things don't just happen. People make them happen, right? And it's not just you either, right? Even though, of course, you I'm sure it was a huge lift for you, I'm sure. It was a team effort. Yes. It was, it was yes. definitely not just me. Yes, so uh, kudos to the entire team that put that together and again, Major kudos to all the firms that showed up. Fabulous. We have gone much longer than I thought we would because you have so much great content. Uh, Is there there anything that uh, you wanted to cover that we we didn't get in? Uh, No, I think... um, I. 
I think it's a great conversation. Thank you for humoring me. I, I could talk about this stuff all day. Well, honestly. so I do have an ask, which is after you launch publicly and you are in a position to talk about what it is that you do are doing with even more specificity, I would love to, if you're up for it, jump on the phone and, and just chop it up a little bit to, to learn more about what it is that you're offering and what kind of value it creates for me as a customer and I just want to I want to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Would would love to do it. Okay. Well, Jay, <laughs> I have learned so much as always. Thank you so much. You are a fabulous guest. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the time immensely, truly.